we see here that Cain is described as an evil. He was a wicked man. What he was doing was wrong, but Abel was a righteous man. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Sisters, what a privilege we have this morning to study God's Word. Uh, The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verses 11 through 16, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Friends, may we delight in God's word this morning, and may we come with humility, knowing that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. God's word is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. So let's ask the Lord for help once again as we open his word. Holy Spirit, we, we need you this morning to open our eyes to see, to open our ears to hear, our minds to understand and our hearts to receive this word, to follow it, to love it, to not forget your statutes. Lord, we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would protect us from error, and that we would walk away today not just with more knowledge, but as Chris prayed earlier, that our affections would grow towards you. Our love would increase, our devotion would increase, and that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week, the depravity of mankind was once again on display. Tuesday afternoon into Wednesday, we were once again confronted with a shooting. This time, of course, we know with many children that were killed. And as we're praying, and as we're grieving, and as we're shocked at the horrible nature of this crime, we know that as believers, we have true hope in this situation. We have the answer to the question, why? Why did this happen? Of course, that's what always happens when these things take place. People want to know all about the individual that committed the crime. They want to know all about the situation to try and understand it. The politicians, of course, will use it for their gain and for their talking points and for their agendas and come up with or desire to come up with laws, new laws, new things to implement, new safety measures, lots of different things. But we know that none of those will truly fix the problem because it goes back to our hearts, our hearts that are desperately wicked and so much in need of God's grace. And so as we were confronted with multiple murders this week, this morning we go back to the very first murder to understand the heart of Cain, to understand the sin that drove Cain to this point. Over the last two weeks, we've been reminded of how sin came into the world, and we saw through the disobedience of Adam and Eve how mankind was cursed, how Satan was cursed, and how the whole world itself was cursed because of this sin. 
But we've also been called to address our own sinful natures as well. Last Sunday, our application was that in the believer's life, sin must be rightly confessed, fervently resisted, and mercilessly annihilated with the Spirit's help. But how is it even possible to do this? How is it possible to speak of any hope in such a devastating portion of Scripture? Only with these words. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The promise of the Messiah, our Redeemer, is here, even as sin entered the world. We just have to say, oh, the wonder of the love of God. We come and stand in awe in his goodness. Well, as we study the book of Genesis, we're going to see this promise come again and again, but we also see the reality of how sin has infected this world, world and the depth and depravity of mankind. And we see this clearly in our passage today. And in Genesis 3, we saw how sin entered the world, and now in Genesis 4, we see the fruit that this sin produces. In fact, man's nature is so infected with sin that what was started in Genesis 3 builds until we reach Genesis 6, 5, which says that the intentions of his heart was only evil continually. Our simple outline this morning, if you'd like to take notes, is as follows. We have the offering in the first five verses. We have a gracious warning from the Lord to Cain in verses 6 and 7. We have the murder itself in verse 8. And we have the trial of Cain in verses 9 through 12. And the complaint of Cain in verses 13 through 16. And in this account of Cain and Abel, we're also going to see five aspects of sin. And we will look at those as well, one for each point. So first we have the offering as Ryan just read these opening verses, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So here we see some time has passed since the events of chapter 3. Adam and Eve have had at least two boys, although most likely they had other children as well. In fact, the next chapter tells us that they did have other children that are not mentioned in Scripture. And some people have suggested that Adam and Eve uh, might have had as many as 60 children in their lifetime, uh, which wouldn't be a stretch considering the long life that they had and also the special conditions that existed in the world before the flood. But as we move into these first five verses, we see that these boys have grown up. They've become men, they have uh, professions, and they have a relationship with Yahweh. And as it is common in the book of Genesis, we have a lot of firsts in these chapters. In chapter four, we have the first birth, we have the first family, we have the first sibling, and unfortunately, the first murder. Now, Cain, as we pronounce it in English, is a transliterated word from the Hebrew. If you were to try and say it in Hebrew, it would sound something like Cain, Cain, which is kind of like if you put a very strong southern accent on it and you say, hey, Cain, get on over here, <laughs> something like that. Uh, but it means possession in Hebrew. And the Hebrew language uh, uses it to refer to something that's made by a craftsman. And so Cain can mean a formed thing, a thing made by a craftsman, like a spear or a sword. But you remember, what was the promise that was given about the offspring of Eve in chapter 3? That Satan would be crushed, right? That her offspring would would crush Satan. And so there's a good chance that Eve believed that Cain was that special offering. But as we know, 
she did believe that she would have been sadly mistaken. On the screen here, we have the Hebrew for Cain and Abel and how we would pronounce it there as best we can in English. And sometime after Eve uh, gave birth to Cain, she gave birth to Abel. And Abel's name in Hebrew is not pronounced with a southern accent. It's pronounced as Hevel. Hevel. And it means breath. Which is very interesting, considering that Abel's life was very short. Like the quickness of one's breath. Of course, we know, compared with the eternality of God, all of our lives are just a breath. Uh, Psalm 144, verse 4 says this very clearly. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Well, verse 2 also tells us that both Cain and Abel had an occupation. Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. Both were necessary and good jobs to have. And they would have been trained up by Adam in both of these professions. And in that, there's an encouragement here for us as fathers to take seriously the responsibility we have to teach our children, to raise them up in the Lord, but also to guide them, to teach them, and to expose them to different occupations. My son Keith, right now, he's been waffling back and forth between being a police officer and a test driver for new cool cars. Uh, he's leaning, well, he was leaning toward the test drive, but I asked him yesterday, he says now he's leaning more towards being a police officer. But as he gets older, we'll have more opportunities to talk about, and he'll be exposed to other professions, and we'll see how the Lord leads. But Abel's choice of work is interesting. He is a shepherd, and we know of some very well-known shepherds in God's word, don't we? We have, of course, the most well-known would be David, but also we see Moses. Moses was a shepherd before he went to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And our Lord, of course, is called the great shepherd of the sheep. And pastors are referred to as shepherds of the flock, shepherd, shepherds of the church. And one aspect of the shepherd's work is solitude. You're out with your sheep alone. And that lends itself well to getting to know the Lord to being alone with God and drawing close to him. Both David and Moses came to know the Lord well while being a shepherd first before they had any type of public ministry. And we'll see soon that Abel is described as righteous. And this undoubtedly came in part because of the time that he spent alone with the Lord while working. And there's an application point here as well. For those of you who are graduating high school and moving in to the workforce, we just prayed for our graduates last Sunday. Tori's here with us. She just graduated. So in considering what your occupation will be, I have some encouragements. First, that you would desire to choose a job that would help your relationship with the Lord grow, that would give you that opportunity. Ask the question, what job would be best for my soul, not best for my bank account? What line of work would least expose you to sin? And what occupation would give you the opportunity to serve and to enjoy the Lord? Those are good questions to consider. Well, now we come to the offering itself in verse 3. In that first phrase there, it says, now, in the course of time, that reads in the Hebrew more like at the end of days. And that signifies that what Cain and Abel were doing was a regular thing. It could have been every seventh day or possibly yearly where they would come to the Lord. And we're not told the details of this, but there must have been some revelation from the Lord, some example from Adam and Eve, in order for Cain and Abel to know that they needed to do this. And the same word for offering here is used later in Leviticus under the Mosaic law to describe the sacrifices that the Israelites were to bring. And verse 3 and 4 tell us that Cain brought the fruit of the ground and Abel brought the firstborn or the first fruits of his flock along with the fat portions. And the Lord had regard or respect for Abel's offering, but no regard for Cain's. 
And so now we have an important question. Why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Because at first glance, we might think, well, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with Cain's offering. They have two different professions, so do two different offerings, right? Cain brought some of his harvest, his produce, and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, of the sheep. But as we look deeper, though, we see that Cain was in direct disobedience to God's instructions, and he was coming to God with unacceptable worship. Henry Morris says here, the sharp contrast between God's recognition of Abel's animal sacrifice and Cain's fruit offering is startling. The entire scene emphasizes that Cain's action was a sudden departure from years of accepted practice. And verse 6 will give us some more insight into this. But we also, in the whole counsel of God's word, we have other scriptures that shed light on the differences between Cain and Abel. So we're going to see a couple things. First, we're going to see the state of their hearts. Very different. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, which we're looking forward to studying soon in our Wednesday Bible study, it says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So we see here that Cain is described as an evil. He was a wicked man. What he was doing was wrong. But Abel was a righteous man. And next, as we just saw also in Genesis, but in another passage, there's a difference in their offerings. Hebrews 11 verse 4 gives us some insight into this. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. A more acceptable sacrifice. Or your translation may say, a more excellent sacrifice. So how is it more excellent? Well, in offering an animal sacrifice, he was offering a sacrifice of atonement. He was coming to God in humility, recognizing his sin, acknowledging that he was a sinner. And he was continuing in the picture of God himself when God sacrificed an animal to cover the sins of Adam and Eve in the garden. And also you notice here in Genesis that Abel brought the best, the best of the best, the firstborn and the fat portions. Cain just brought the fruit of the ground. Nothing else there, implying that he grabbed something along the way, something that he did not want himself, something that was just laying around. And then finally, a big difference between Cain and Abel, according to Hebrews, is that Abel brought his sacrifice, it says, in faith. Cain did not. And this shows Abel's belief and trust in the Lord, similar to how Abraham is described in Romans 4 when he was, it was counted to him as righteousness. Very same, very similar phrasing. He was commended as righteous. Matthew, Sen Matthew Henry says here, Abel was a penitent believer, like the tax collector that went away justified. Cain was unhumbled. His confidence was within himself. He was like the Pharisee who glorified himself, but was not so much as justified before God. Not justified. Well, the end of verse 5 tells us that Cain was very angry, and his face fell, or his countenance fell. And the Hebrew there implies the idea of inward heat rising up into his face. So he's furious. He's becoming very angry, and his countenance fell. His face fell. That means he's falling into despair. He was angry with God and jealous of Abel when he should have been angry at himself and looking at himself. And it's a sign of unrepentant, prideful heart. When one gets angry at others over their own sin and angry at the consequences, but refusing to acknowledge that this has been brought on by their own sin, by their own actions. Proverbs 19.3 clearly tells us, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. 
So we see here our first aspect of sin. And I don't have these as slides, but encourage you to write them down. The first aspect of sin is that sin produces disobedience. Sin produces disobedience. In Cain's offering, we see clear disobedience coming from a wicked, unrepentant heart. And another quick point to consider here is that God takes very seriously how we come to him in worship. We don't have time to dive into this too much here, but we see in his word, both in the Old and the New Testaments, clear direction for how his people are to come and worship him. It's not worship of our own making, of our own feelings, what we want. We don't get to choose how we come to him. He alone has the say in that matter. And Cain brought unacceptable worship to the Lord, and it was rejected. Well, we go on to the next two verses here. We see that God, in his kindness and grace, warns Cain about the path he is on. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So in these verses, we have echoes of how the Lord came and spoke to Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin. He asked questions, not because, of course, he doesn't know what is happening, but in order, in his grace, to give Cain an opportunity to consider his ways to repent before it gets worse. First, he asked a question about the attitude his attitude of anger. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And we see here again God's omniscience. And just as he knows Cain's heart, he knows our hearts as well. There is not an angry or jealous thought, fleeting as though it may be, that he does not know. And in asking Cain, why are you angry? God is imploring him to search his thoughts, to consider his motives, and put them to death immediately. And it's a good reminder for us as well. As anger flashes into our bodies through different circumstances, we should stop and ask ourselves, okay, why am I angry right now? Taking time to stop and to consider that allows the Holy Spirit to do his work in convicting us and sanctifying us. Well, next God gives Cain a reminder of blessing and then a warning. He says, if you do well, Will you not be accepted? In other words, if you come to me in obedience, there will be blessing. Or now, if you come in repentance and humility, we can move forward and there can be forgiveness. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he is impartial, that he shows no extra favor to anyone based on their outward characteristics. We've been studying the book of James in our young adults Bible study, and last week we looked at the test of partiality, especially in how we treat others in the church. Several times throughout Scripture, we've been saying it this morning, God is described as unchanging. He's described as no respecter of persons. He is perfectly just to all. And we have to admit that our sin is what makes us enemies of God. The, the fault is only found in us. But anyone who comes to God in repentance will find that his mercy and grace is available to them. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. And he's coming in this way to Cain. He's offering mercy, but he's also offering a warning. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. What did God say to Eve? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Very similar phrasing. God is saying here, Cain, there's anger in your heart. You have sinned already. You are headed downhill. Your sinful flesh is crouching, waiting, and will lead you from bad to worse. And James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 describes this process in our hearts, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
This is the road that Cain is on. And the imagery of sin crouching at the door, it reminds us of 1 Peter 5.8, doesn't it? Where it says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Cain, if you do not repent now, sin will ravage you, and you will spend your life fighting it. And I read another illustration this week that brought a different perspective. Uh, sin, if you let sin run rampant in your house, the punishment of sin waits at the door like a bounty hunter who is waiting for the criminal to come outside. And as soon as he does, he's going to grab him. And my mom always used to tell me growing up, be sure that your sin will find you out. She told me that, of course, when she knew I was hiding something. But I didn't know until later that she was quoting from Numbers 32. It's directly from God's word. And it's true. Often in this life, our sins will find us out. But if not in this life, there will be justice in the next. And so we have to, once again, ask the question, has Christ paid for your sins? Or will you pay for it for the rest of eternity? The wages or payment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, we know that Cain chose to ignore this gracious reminder and warning from the Lord, and that's the second aspect of sin. Sin ignores wisdom. Sin ignores wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, now we come to the act itself. It's been building up to this point. In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And so we see how Cain's anger has progressed into hatred, culminating in the act of taking another image bearer's life. How disgusting is the fruit of sin. And we see what can come of somebody who lets jealousy and anger control their life. And that's the next, next aspect of sin, that sin breeds hatred. Sin breeds hatred. And both Jesus and John speak clearly about this. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And also in 1 John 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In 1 John, we're also called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. How much more should we love our earthly siblings who are in Christ? And even in the Hebrew here in verse 8 of Genesis, it emphasizes those words, his brother, to show the closeness of the relationship and how horrible it was. And there's also hints of a plot or a trap here when it says that Cain spoke to his brother. The Septuagint translation words it a little bit differently where it says Cain spoke to his brother and he said to him let's go out into the field together so there's this implication that Cain is luring Abel out uh, in a show of fake kindness I, come here I've got to show I got to show you something out there and then as they go out he ambushes Abel and kills him he was covering his murderous intentions with a show of friendship and kindness. It was all a lie. But in killing his brother, Cain was also striking a blow at God himself. In fact, this happens every time a murder is committed. God alone has the authority to give life. And he is the one that adjudicates the circumstances when death will take place. Every human we know is created in God's image and has dignity and worth. And so this is why anger and murder are addressed so strongly in God's word. How dare you? How dare you? The audacity of the pride and rebellion to think that you can take a life that God created 
It's the epitome of rebellion. But what about Abel's perspective in this? Well, of course, death, even in the most horrible circumstance of murder, is a blessing to a believer. And so here we have another first. We have in Abel the first saint in glory. And in a sense, we also have the first martyr. Abel was hated and killed in part because of his true worship of the Lord. He came in humility, reverence, and obedience to the Lord. Cain was jealous and angry, and he was killed because of his true worship. Well, from here we move to the trial in verses 9 through 12. Cain's trial. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And Ryan did a good job reading, putting some inflection here. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. So in these verses, we have the account of Cain's trial, his conviction, and his sentencing. And we don't see the creation of civil court and sentencing in regards to murder until Genesis 9. And then, of course, it develops much more as we get into the Mosaic Law. But here we have, as we did in the garden, God himself acting as judge. And here we see the fourth aspect of sin, that sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. And he starts with a question. Once again, Cain, where is Abel? He's giving Cain the opportunity to confess. But what does Cain plead? Cain pleads not guilty. And his response compounds on his sin because he lies and he offers back a disrespectful retort. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The depth of depravity that is in his heart at this point that he could respond with a bold-faced lie full well knowing that God knew what was going on. And we see how the sinfulness of mankind continues to progress. When the Lord confronted Adam and Eve, Adam put the blame on Eve and Eve put the blame on the serpent, but they did not lie to the Lord as Cain is doing here. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says this about the devil as he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so we see that Cain is of his father, the devil, a murderer and a liar. And not only does he lie, but he accuses God. When he says, am I my brother's keeper? Basically, he's saying, you are God. You should know where he is. If he's missing, that's on you. The blame is on you. And John MacArthur mentions in his study Bible that Cain is also using a play on words here. When he uses the word keeper, he's basically saying, am I supposed to shepherd Abel around like he shepherds his sheep? And this is a phrase that has been used all throughout history. There's many phrases in the Bible that have been used in popular culture for a long time. And Often, people don't know that it actually comes from the Bible. Uh, but this is one of them. Am I my brother's keeper? And so, how does this apply to us? Well, it is clear from God's word that we are called to care and to watch over our brothers and sisters in Christ. All the one another commands in Scripture point to this, especially when this is lived out in the church, in covenant membership with one another. And if we are unconcerned about each other, if we take no opportunity to help care for one another, both physically and spiritually, we are in effect speaking Cain's language and acting very selfishly. 
Galatians 6.10 clearly tells us, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Verse 10 gives us Cain's conviction. God didn't even bother to respond to Cain's sarcastic response. He rejected his not guilty plea, and he goes right to the seriousness of the sin. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Again, God knew what Cain had done. All sin is first an offense against God himself. Last week, during our time of confession, we prayed Psalm 51, where it says, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And so the rebellion of every sin cries out to God. And so God is using this figure of speech to show us that all sin is known by him. And from here, God moves quickly to sentencing Cain for his sin. In verse 11, now you are cursed from the ground. And we see a difference here between the curse that is given to Adam and Eve and the curse that's given to Cain. God showed mercy to Adam, and he pronounced the curse not so much on Adam himself, but on the ground. Of course, it all affected Adam. But not so for Cain. God says here, cursed are you. Again, the punishment is more severe as well. God told Adam, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to deal with thorns and thistles. You're going to sweat. It's going to be very difficult to see production come from the ground. But for Cain, he goes a step farther, where he says the ground will no longer yield to you its strength. And then he adds, you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so God takes from Cain two blessings in his common grace that the, that the earth gives us, sustenance and settlement. Sustenance and settlement. Cain will be a farmer no more. Not only that, but he will be a fugitive and a wanderer. What is a fugitive? Well, a fugitive, of course, is someone who is running from justice, someone who can't settle anywhere. They have to be on the move. And so this part of the punishment also speaks to his ongoing reputation that he will have on the earth. He will have no rest. He will be a disgrace among men. And he will also have no rest from his own guilt. It will follow and pursue him the rest of his life, offering him no peace, ravaging his mind, haunting him. And we, we've seen how unconfessed sin and guilt can haunt somebody's life. Drive them to despair, madness, even suicide. And Judas, of course, is a prime example of this. He regretted his actions, yet there was no repentance on his part. There was no forgiveness given to him, and that drove him to kill himself. Yet, even in this sentence, we see God's grace and mercy to Cain because a question pops up. Well, why didn't God kill Cain? Why didn't God execute Cain, uh, pronounce capital punishment on him? A life for a life, right? We're told that in Genesis 9. Well, of course, we do not know the mind of God. The text does not tell us exactly why God chose to punish him in this way, but it could be for a couple reasons. Like I mentioned first, it's God's grace and mercy that he chooses to give Cain. God in his nature is amazingly gracious, giving us all what we don't deserve. We all, just as Cain, deserve death. Yet he bestows his grace on us through Christ. Secondly, capital punishment had not yet been instituted by God. And we know that this punishment was to be taken and undertaken by the civil government, which God has given the authority to enact. It's not private vengeance. And we'll see more on that in a little bit. But thirdly, it's possible that God let Cain live so that he would be a living example of one who has given himself over to sin. And God gave him a special mark for that purpose. And so let's go into our last section here, the complaint. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, seven times worse. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should, should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what Cain says here in response is a slap in the face to God's righteous judgment. He's complaining, and he's almost saying, this isn't fair. Once again, instead of humbling himself before the Lord and thanking him for his grace, he complains and he argues with God about it. And here, Cain sets a standard for us, showing the attitude of those who have hard hearts. The evidence of this is when a person is more concerned over his own suffering because of his sin rather than the sin itself and what an affront it is to our holy God. And we see this lived out in the life of Pharaoh. He pleads with Moses to forgive his sin. That word is used. He said, please forgive me. But it was a false Repentance. He only wanted the suffering of the plagues to cease. And as soon as they did, he was right back at it. But Cain goes on to complain about his punishment. You are casting me away from the ground and out of your presence. Well, he's right about that. And that shows us the fifth and final aspect of sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. What will God say to those who have not repented and trusted Christ? He'll say, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25. I believe that Cain understood the implications and the severity of this punishment. If the offerings that Cain and Abel brought were a weekly or yearly occurrence he would be forbidden from coming again to that. It's like an excommunication. And he also complains about how he's going to be treated by the rest of mankind. He says, whoever finds me will kill me. Well, who would possibly want to kill him? His family, his other brothers and sisters, his nieces and nephews, perhaps. Yet, I also think that there's some paranoia creeping in to Cain's mind as well. Because this is another consequence of in the life of someone who has guilt and sin that hasn't been addressed. Paranoia. Proverbs 28 verse 1. It says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And Psalm 53 5 also addresses this. It says, There they are, referring to the wicked, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. But God will not allow Cain to be touched. Not so, he says. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will come on him sevenfold. So the Lord puts a mark on Cain as a sign for anyone who is thinking of attacking him. And God is actually protecting Cain here to preserve his righteous judgment. For if someone would come and kill Cain in vengeance, God's punishments would be nullified. And God was still going to use Cain for his purposes. And it would be wrong for someone to come and enact private vengeance. In a, in a sense, it's the same for our convicted felons that we have in prisons today. They are protected by the law of the land. Like we said earlier, God gave the sword of justice to the government. We are not under mob rule in any type of lynchings or, you know, we have all the movies where people take judgment into their own hands. That is not God's design. It presumes upon God's judgment because what does he say in Romans 12, 19? He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God as it is written. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Think about it. If Cain was killed immediately, we would still have the shocking consequence to consider. We have the other places in Scripture. We have that with Nadab and Abihu, who also came with unacceptable worship, and the Lord killed them on the spot. We have that with Ananias and Sapphira, who lied, and the Lord killed them on the spot in the book of Acts. He does not do that with Cain. If he did, we would still have that shocking consequence, but he would have been forgotten potentially more quickly. But in God's purposes, he lives for us and the rest of the time that the Lord gave him, he lives to be a lasting monument of God's justice. So what does this mark? Well, we don't know. We don't know. The word in Hebrew is a very broad term. It could mean several things but it was some kind of distinguishing characteristic that set Cain apart from everyone else, letting everyone know, everyone know that this is the man who killed his own brother. Nobody is allowed to hurt him, but I can imagine that often there was a lot of spitting on the ground in his presence or comments of shame given to him. And verse 16, in effect, begins the epilogue of Cain and of his descendants, which we're going to look at in more detail next week. But it further highlights that last aspect of sin, that sin separates us from God. Because what does it say? Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in a different land, Nod, east of Eden. He went out from the presence. He was separated from God, never to return. Well, so what are we seeing today, friends? We've seen that the fruit of sin committed by man in his depravity, in his disobedience, in his pride, in his rebellion, in his anger, in his rejection of truth. We've seen five aspects of sin. Sin produces disobedience. It ignores wisdom. It breeds hatred. It always has consequences let that be a lesson for all of us that sin always has consequences. You may, we may think at times that it does not, but it does. And sin ultimately separates us from God. But as we close this morning, I want to draw us to another passage in Scripture that mentions the account of Cain and Abel. It's in the book of Hebrews. Let's turn there together. Hebrews chapter 12. 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It's mentioned in verse 24, but we're going to start in verse 22 for a little bit of context. This whole section is a joyful section to read, that we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In verse 22, we read, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angel, angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is describing who we are as believers in Christ, coming into that kingdom that cannot be shaken, purchased for us by the blood of Christ, who is our perfect mediator, the one mediator between God and man. His blood was shed, and that blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why is Abel brought into this? Well, Abel was a righteous man. His blood was was shed. He was killed. But that blood of Abel does not save us. No, it does not institute the new covenant. Warren Wearsby says here, Abel's blood spoke from the earth and cried for justice, while Christ's blood speaks from heaven and announces mercy for sinners. Abel's blood made Cain feel guilty and drove him away in despair. But Christ's blood frees us from guilt and has opened the way into the presence of God. Amen. 
we see here the first murder in history, and it's used throughout the scriptures as a warning, but also to point us to Christ. Abel's blood was the first to be shed, but one day the offspring of the woman would have his blood shed for us, and it would be the final word against the father of murder and lies. Jude verse 11, it also speaks about Cain. It speaks of those who have gone the way of Cain in their depravity. But the truth is, is that all of us have gone the way of Cain. We are all in need of Christ's blood to be shed on our behalf. And so the question is, brothers and sisters, have you trusted in the finished work of Christ? We pray that you have. We plead for you to repent and trust. And we'd love to to share with you more about how you can be free of the guilt and sin that haunts you in this moment. Do those verses in Proverbs describe you? Are you fleeing when no one is pursuing you? Are you a fool who despises wisdom and instruction? Come to Christ today. You can always come and speak to me after our gathering. You can come and speak to any that are on the music team, any of our greeters. We'd love to share with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a privilege it is to study your word, even once again as we're faced with such a disturbing account of Scripture, one that we see continuing in our day today, the full depravity of our sinful natures on display. But we thank you and rejoice and praise you that in your grace and in your plan, you once again use this first murder in history to point to another murder. The blood of your son, Jesus, that was shed on our behalf. We thank you for those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in you. We thank you that we rest in your finished work that our sins have been washed as white as snow. As we're going to sing in a moment, there is no more guilt to carry because it was finished upon that cross. Lord, we love you so much. We stand in awe of how good you are and how your word has been preserved for us and speaks to us just as poignantly and importantly today as it did when these events occurred so long ago. Please unite us together in our singing now, Lord Jesus, as we respond to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.